0: Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today, a cornerstone of the Los Angeles literary community visits our international world headquarters. David Ulin is here. He's the chief book critic of the Los Angeles Times, and he's written a book about walking in Los Angeles. It's his entry into the fantasy genre. (laughs) And our old friend B.J. Novak, remember him? He comes every week, but he gets bumped this week. He's coming on. I swear, he's in the green room, ready to go. We had to bump him last week when our discussion about Jungian imagery in the works of Mario Puzo ran long.
1: <laughs> yeah. Tom, you know, I didn't understand.
0: I didn't think that segment would go so long. It did. He's been a prince about it,
1: and and Mario deserves it.
0: Joining me are my co-hosts, the professor, Tom Lutz, and critic, journalist, LARB editor, the only reason she supports Hillary Clinton is that Oscar Hammerstein isn't running, Lori Weiner.
2: Hi, sir.
0: You know, Tom, it's the rare arts organization, it's the rare individual who works in the arts who thinks they have enough money. Would you agree? I think
1: that that's a, a, a universal. No yes. one, no, no one, no one thinks one. they
0: have enough money. Right. We want to tell everybody about LA 2050, an initiative working to make Los Angeles the best place to live and to be a creative person. That's.
1: Quite a uh, quite an endeavor. It's the Goldhirsch Foundation. They've been doing it now for three years, four years, and uh, it's a complex uh, ecosystem. They have a series of conversations with people about what kinds of prizes they should give, how they should, what kind of metrics should be used to see whether these projects that they and find the grants are, are humongous.
0: Working. They're for a hundred thousand dollars each. Hundred
1: thousand dollars each. Well, we
0: applied for one last year, and uh, what happened? We came in second. Well, here's the deal. Larb is up for one of these grants again, and If our listeners could take just 30 seconds to click their mouse a few times, they could conceivably make a serious difference in the life of writers and organizations like LARB in in Los Angeles.
1: We could pay Ernesto and Jerry. Ernesto
0: and Jerry. I think
2: that would be a mistake, though.
1: But they look like they could use money.
2: What does that even mean? I look like I could use
0: money. <laughs> I mean nothing by that. My so we, bank we account looks like I second could second use money. we came in second place
2: last year? We came so. in second place. Didn't you we, also want come in, come we want to come in, in first. Didn't you come in second place in a beauty contest last year?
0: That what was it? Didn't
1: I Vince think. Lombardi said winning isn't everything, it's the only thing? The uh, organization the, and a panel of judges make it make decisions about other grants. Some of the grants go to the first, the top vote getter and then their panel chooses We need we writers.
0: need to win or we would or, like to win or failing that poison the top vote getter. I'm, we can't we could, do I think that that's now a, that you've against Now that you said it we can't do against it. against the contest. It's a good so idea that so you blew just it. just go to our website lareviewofbooks.org click on the yellow vote button it could not be easier. Go vote for writers, vote for Larb. And make sure to check out all the other incredible projects that are part of L.A. 2050. Yes, vote
1: for your favorite project in each of the five categories.
2: Or just in our category.
1: And send Jerry and Ernesto money.
0: You know him as the Los Angeles Times' chief book critic. David Ulan has taken time out from his incredibly busy schedule of uh, promoting his new book, Sidewalking. (laughs) Coming to terms with Los Angeles to promote it on the LARB radio hour today. Welcome, David Eulin.
3: Thank you, Seth. Glad to be here.
1: He can't be that busy or he wouldn't be walking everywhere.
2: I know. I what was I'm thinking, thinking the same thing. Have you come to terms with Los Angeles? No. no oh. Of course,
3: course not. not. All right. No. So, can, so can one truly no. come to terms no. with no. Los Angeles? So here's
0: my first question. You and I have been discussing this book for a long time. You told me about this book several years ago when you were when it was a glint in your eye. How do you apprehend a city like Los Angeles from the perspective of walking?
3: I mean, in some way, I've been kind of unconsciously thinking about or writing this book probably for, you know, 20 years in some way. Since I started thinking and writing about Los Angeles, I always have walked here uh, because I grew up in New York and I lived in San Francisco and Boston and other walking cities. And so walking has always been the kind of vernacular of city life. And when I first moved here, my wife and I had one car I worked mostly at home, so um, I just sort of naturally elided into um, into walking. And I didn't really think anything of it except you know, I was usually the only person on the street. Um, but, you know, I mean, you, you, know, you put one foot in front of the other and you move and eventually you get to where you're going. Once I started really thinking about the book, I liked the idea of walking for a couple reasons. One, because it was organic to my experience of the city. And I think one of the things that Los Angeles presents maybe that other cities don't is that there isn't really a master narrative. I also really liked it once I got into it as a kind of strategy, because it is so counterintuitive that it kind of forced me and hopefully pushes the reader a little bit, but certainly as a writer forced me out of my own stereotypes or preconceptions. And I had to kind of look at the city at foot speed rather than automotive speed.
2: Have you seen the documentary about Jonathan Gold? Called City of Gold.
3: I have not seen that.
2: Okay. Well, I mean, I don't think it's been released yet, and we'll talk about it when it gets released next year. But he says a very similar thing, and and that you really can't know LA until you get out there and you are, you know, just on foot. Which I,
1: uh, let me let me just say, I I'm not buying that entirely mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I one of the things that City of Gold is great at, and you'll see, is that it's great at showing you the way the. The city looks as you drive through it, right? And and they they experimented with a lot of different size lenses and stuck it on the side of his truck, and just you just see the the city going by in that film the way you see it going by at around twenty one miles an hour, right? right? So it's it's kind of a and I feel like I know the city at that speed and I like it, right? And it's not inferior to the sense of of LA you get walking.
3: Oh, no, not at all. And I think actually it encompasses both. I mean, you know, when I was um, in fact, I actually put this line in the book. When I first started working on the book, Mark Haskell Smith said, you're not really going to make a case that Los Angeles is a walking city, are you? And I was like, no, I can't possibly make a case. And I think the great thing about for again, as partly as a writer, but also as a city dweller about Los Angeles is that it's all of it. You know, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that all the cliches of Los Angeles are absolutely true, but their inverse is also absolutely True, and that's really where the complexity of the city is. Um, Angeline is the perfect metaphor in the sense because you know she's. When I first moved here, I couldn't stand her because of her shallowness. Then I kind of fell in love with her because of her shallowness.
0: For and our, now, I'm totally right? um, for, now I'm for, totally ambivalent about for, her. For our, her for her our shall- listeners under forty, you might
3: want to say who Angelina is. Oh, she's still floating around in her pink Corvette, isn't she? Do you, yes, you guys actually yes. have listeners she's under forty? <laughs> no, we have two listeners, and they're both
2: over forty. So don't even bother.
0: You write about both the La Brea Tar Pits and the Grove, which are two completely uh, binary (laughs) poles of Los Angeles. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about the relationship between the Tar Pits and the Grove and how you elucidated that in your book.
3: Well, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I think they are binary on on the one hand, but I think they're also actually quite related on the other hand, because, I mean, it's very easy to dismiss both of them as kind of cheesy tourist. The, The Tar Pits, you know, in some sense, with those plaster... Uh, mastodons You know Sort of hanging out on the, You know The one in the water Oh it's
2: such a sad story Because the little baby Is stuck Right in, And then No it's
3: the mother Who's stuck Oh the mother is stuck yeah. Right And
2: on the shore The little baby And the dad Are like right. going,
3: ah! It's a it's a Disney movie Right <laughs> Oh Disney, it's so <laughs> sad And the mother is
2: sinking It's horrible Laurie it's not
3: real It's not real It's not real <laughs> But it
2: happened <laughs>
3: Although When I was a kid When I was like six years It's like one of my only Childhood memories Of Los Angeles Is visiting the tar pits And at six You know It looked pretty real right so i was like whoa how are they going to get the mother out of the tar but in that way that it's this sort of cheesy peeling plastery thing and the tar lake is kind of gross and you know there's stuff floating in it and you know in some ways it seems to epitomize the the lamest kind of shallowest stuff about los angeles and it is in fact a creation right though that tar lake was carved out in 19 Mm -hmm. 19 early 19 teens so It has that component to it, but at the same time, what's in that tar, which is sort of both the fossils that are in the tar and also the presence of the tar itself, the idea that this whole city is essentially built on a big bowl of sand and tar, is the most elemental reality we've got. And I think the Grove, in a certain way, is an entirely artificial cityscape, right? A fake street inspired by Walt Disney, um, designed to promote commerce, not street as thoroughfare, but street as destination... But at the same time, authentic um, urban interactions happen there. I mean, I, you know, first of all, the the Grove as a street is always open. It's never closed, even if the stores are closed. So people in the neighborhood, I have a friend who lives around the corner who always sort of jogs through there, walks her dog. Um, But also, you know, I have serendipitous urban encounters there. I run into people on the street, even though it's a quasi-street. But that sense of like, oh, hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. There are very few places in Los Angeles where you have that kind of that sort of serendipitous interaction.
0: You also make the case that the Grove is no less authentic an urban space than something like New York City.
3: Well, yeah. New York, Well, this is a great revelation that was essentially given to me by a guy named Greg Heiss, who used to be a professor at USC, I said to him in an interview, you know, what about more organic city spaces? And he started laughing and said, you know, there's no such thing as an organic city space. (laughs) They don't don't grow out of the earth.
2: So I I stopped being snobby
0: about the Grove the second I finished your book. (laughs) So David, you grew up in New York. You're an actual born and bred Manhattan New
3: Yorker. Manhattan, yeah.
0: So how did that affect the way you apprehend Los Angeles? What did, what did you bring, and and do you feel it's been an advantage or a disadvantage in terms of adjusting
3: to being here? I hated it when I first got here. I mean, it, it depends on what kind, of, what kind of New Yorker you are. If you're a New Yorker who identifies heavily with, with a place, and also if you're wired as I am to really think about place as a kind of key element in identity and I grew up in a family where New York was a big part of the family lore right my grandfather who he used to tell me stories all the time he came over from Russia when he was 7 or 8 becoming uh, not just becoming an american but becoming a new yorker was a huge part of his identity I really identified with him and with that vision, and, and so it was sort of steeped into my blood by that connection. So if that's your framework, it's impossible not to compare every place to New York. And even before I moved to Los Angeles, when I lived in San Francisco, when I lived in Boston, I went to college in Philadelphia, or I visit other cities, they all seem smaller. Uh, if you, especially, I think if you grow up in Manhattan, right? They, the, they are all smaller. Oh, I know, but yes, you know, so I mean, <laughs> they don't feel like cities in a certain way. But you know, yeah. that, <clears throat> there's a, I think there's a part in the book where I talk about, you know, I think I was 15 or 16 before I had the visceral realization that New York was actually outside. You know, it seems it's so. Talk about artificial, it's so artificial, it's so paved that the idea that there's actually sort of dirt underpinning all of that was, uh, I mean, I remember vividly thinking, oh, there's actually, this is, you know, there's earth under Th- here. This occurs in oh, nature at this place. Yeah. So you
1: thought of going outside as like crossing a bridge. Right.
3: right. Outside was the country. You know, the park was sort of an outside museum piece, right? Central Park was kind of, but you were really, you know, you were in bounded. The diorama. Exactly. You were in a diorama. You are in a bounded space when i first moved here it really felt um very i wouldn't even say suburban it felt rural to me in a, in a sense because it was so quiet it was so diffuse it was so still there was no there was no it felt like there was no heat i then you know after a number of years i realized that there was plenty of heat it just wasn't sitting you know I, it wasn't sitting right outside my my door when I walked out. So I think the comparison got in my way at first. I think it also determined, uh, or has determined in, uh, to some extent the way I live in Los Angeles. Things I've always lived in fairly dense urban neighborhoods in Los Angeles, Fairfax District, Mid-Wilshire, Mid-City, uh, Pico Robertson. Um, I've always lived in neighborhoods where I could walk to what I consider to be the, the standard issue things you do in a city. I can walk to the grocery store, I can walk to a bar, I can walk to a couple of restaurants, I can walk to the bank, to the dry cleaner, if I'm working at home, which I do often, I can do all of my errands. I can go days at a time without getting in a car. And so I think in terms of how I carved out a life here, that was a big part of it. And I think, I mean, it's definitely a big part of the book. There is a big conversation in the book between New York and Los Angeles and my own head.
2: Well, we're always amused by, you know, our New Yorker friends um, who come and visit. And, you know, I lived in New York for 17 years. I loved it. I couldn't see ever leaving it, but I did. And now, you know, when we get together, with New Yorkers, and they'll say something like, you know, God, you know, what about, like, you know, I don't understand how you live there. And and I I feel like saying, well, you know, when I come home at night, I smell honeysuckle and jasmine and not vomit and meth, you know? Totally. um, What does meth
0: (laughs) smell like? What does (laughs) meth smell like? It
2: really smells good, actually. (laughs) Paprika. um, Yeah, sometimes. It depends on your mood. But but also, and they're always saying, they're always saying, how do you deal with the car? And I'm thinking, you know, the subway sucks. It stinks. You have to wait forty five minutes in the heat. And Tom said, Well, you know, whatever your mode of transportation is, you kind of vanishes in a way. So you don't so like they're they're discounting how terrible the subway can be I feel like you know at the end of an evening there's my car waiting for me like my little pony to take me home and I'm so happy to see it and you know I listen to my <laughs> books on tape and I'm like very happy and it's not hard at all and- no
3: I I it's funny I mean I love the subway But I also think that this notion, you know, all the, the, whatever, there's that Saturday Night Live bit, the Californians, where they make fun of how all anyone ever talks about is what their route is. But, you know, when I lived in New York, all anyone ever talked about was, you know, what route they, what the subway route was. Or sort of, if you had a, if you lived in an apartment where you were, you know close to three or four different subway lines that was prime real estate so it's all the same conversation it's just the the specifics are different
0: who's more provincial new yorkers or angelinos
3: uh i think at this point i think manhattanites in particular are probably the most provincial
2: i think i don't know if you ever go to barney greengrass on his Saturday afternoon and the Upper West Side, and it really feels like the people there believe that they are in the center of the universe. You just get this. Well, feeling. I mean,
3: even you know what I've always felt, just in terms of literature, right? That you know, it's really interesting to me that the the Northeast in general and and New York in particular, the only region of the country that doesn't define itself as, as a region. Yeah, you know, true. all that literature is and not. There's no knock on it. A lot of great yeah. literature, but yeah, it's regional course. literature. Mm-hmm. Let's you know, that's there's true. no question about it, yep, right? Yep.
1: Well, you know, I, I was trying to sell a book on the 1920s and my New York editor asked me the question that an editor always asks you what else is out there mm-hmm. on the 20s. And I said, well, there's just this there's this book, one great book um, but it's only about Manhattan in
3: the 20s. It's uh, that's the Anne Douglas book, right? Exactly. That is, that is a great exactly. book. Exactly. It is
1: a great book and he and he he snorted. Uh, he he went, oh, "Oh, is that all? Just Manhattan?" <laughs> <laughs> and he was and he was he serious. Was serious.
0: <laughs> This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. We're talking to David Ulin on the LARB Radio Hour, KPFK 90.7 FM. A Martian comes out of a spaceship and he walks up to you and he says, I like fiction. I want to read one book about Los Angeles. What book do you recommend?
3: Oh my God. Um, that's a really excellent question. The book that immediately pops into my head is Richard Rayner's L.A. Without a Map. I'm not sure that that would be the book I would recommend tomorrow, but just that's the book that... I, I think that's actually a fantastic um, L.A. book, also about a guy who doesn't drive, right? He's it's, a large part of that... Not all of it but there's a strong thread in that book about taking the bus in in Los Angeles in the in the in the 80s.
1: So your book in a way is in the tradition of people thinking about how we move through space. it's, yes. it's not about walking per se, it's about it's about the relationship between our experience of moving through space and our sense of the world.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I just finished reading uh, Luc Sante's book, The Other Paris, and he talks a lot about the flaneur tradition mm-hmm. in that book, which uh, which is a walking tradition. But he also defines it as a kind of um, engaged aimlessness almost situationist in its way. I mean he talks about about them as well in psychogeography, but this idea that you're walking and noticing, I mean you are you're not just drifting in a mindless way. You're noticing and observing and...
1: Are you going to get a turtle on a leash to...
3: A, a lobster, like Nerval, yeah, a lobster. <laughs> Although we don't really have good lobsters on the West Coast, so I'd have to import it from the East. <laughs> Just get a cat
0: on a leash and that and, to do it. And,
1: of course, there's Thoreau's sauntering, right? Yeah, I mean, this yeah. kind of idea of... A, it's not, again, it's not aimless, but it allows for... Um, moving sideways as well as forward.
3: Exactly. I think that's exactly right. the sideways idea, and it's a, it's a it, 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 it's not aimless, but in a way, the movement is the is the function itself. It, I mean, you may be going somewhere also, but it's not just getting from one place to another. And I think again, for me, going back to what we were talking about earlier about the car, because I'm not a native driver. I mean I'm pretty comfortable behind the wheel, but it's not my my native tongue. That is a less natural. I'm I'm more aware. How would I put it? It's more destination based. Whereas when I'm walking, I think my mind is a little bit more. Um, it's more unconscious, so I'm I'm able to focus or think about other things.
1: It's so interesting because I'm the, exactly the opposite. I'm, like I travel a lot, and when I travel, and I sometimes I'll go to a country and I'll think, I'm just not getting this place. I don't understand this place. I'm a little bit. And I'm not that thrilled about it. And then I realize it's because I haven't rented a car yet. I'm not driving yet. And once I get in the car and drive around a country, I feel like I've gotten. I'm getting to know it. I feel like I'm understanding it. And I really follow my nose. I don't. I don't have a itinerary. I don't have a plan. I don't know where I'm going. I, a road looks more interesting on the left. I turn left and I go until it ends or and I have to turn around or right.
0: But you
2: are you're, you're checking out the perimeters of the place though right i mean you are you're you're getting the whole the whole big picture exactly
0: Well, the whole idea of this book is so completely counterintuitive i'm really curious when did it occur to you that it was a book and what what, what was the process
3: um it was a strange process for me compared with the other books because as I, as i think i was saying it Kind of grew up unconsciously in a certain way. I started writing about Los Angeles when I f- pretty much when I first got here, because it's one of the ways I make sense of things. So I was trying to figure this place out. I kept writing about it, and I think the first real moment was I, as I said, the, the chapter on the Grove grew out of a piece I wrote, um, probably 2007, I think, about the Grove. I was really interested in. In The Grove, I was interested in in particular in relationship to this question of authenticity and artifice. And For
1: listeners from out of town, can you, t- can you to say, say what, what The Grove, Grove is? is. Yeah. So
3: The Grove is this shopping mall in the Fairfax district, which is designed by a developer uh, named Rick Caruso, whose hero is Walt Disney. And it's essentially a mall, I think, inspired or modeled by Main Street Disney in the sense that all the storefronts are different. It looks like a kind of Hollywood set of street. He did all of this research into sort of what defines a great street, right? Dome of the street, setback of buildings from the curb, you know.
2: Some water feature. Some
3: water feature, a trolley, um, all these kinds of things, exactly. right? So he created this erasat Street that is a kind, you know, the idea was to create a mall that didn't feel like a mall. What he ended up creating was a mall that feels both like a mall and not like a mall in a certain way, but definitely kind of movie setting in, in some sense. But it sits sort of, it shares property with, with part of what used to be the farmer's market. And, And Norman Klein, once I was talking to him about this, and he said, you know, the idea of saving the farmer's market or that the farmer's market is authentic is ludicrous because the farmer's market was the Grove 75 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a fake farmer's market built on the site of a real farmer's market. It's really
2: not a farmer's market. It's not a farmer's market at all. It's just a place
3: where, you know, they have a couple of outdoor bars and screenwriters hang out there and complain, right? Um, So when I was writing that piece, I got really interested in this question of artifice and authenticity and what that means and particularly what that means here where so much stuff begins Begins as artifice, but then it hangs out for a while and then it becomes authentic in its in its way. And I like those um, contradictions and I like things that you know I should hate the grove, but I don't.
0: The book is Sidewalking. It's excellent. David Ulan, thanks for coming in to
1: talk to
3: us. Oh, my pleasure. That was This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me.
1: You're quite welcome. Are you going to subtitle your next book, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles, as well?
3: No, I, yeah, yeah, All <laughs> of I, your coming books. Coming More to Terms with Los Angeles, or recoming to Terms coming with Los really Angeles.
2: Coming really close to Coming to Terms. No, I
3: keep saying... I, I keep saying it's like... I feel like Michael Corleone in The Godfather 3, you know, about when it comes to writing about Los Angeles, the more I try to get out, the more they pull me back in. <laughs> Thanks again, David.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Tom.
0: Last week we had Gary Indiana on the show. He's a, a writer who's written a bunch of books and also an actor and a playwright and a general New York creative mad about town. And he said some very provocative things. And, Laura, you were uh, very concerned with how that segment went.
2: Well, I think that it's the kind of conversation that sometimes you really enjoy off mic at a party and you're, you laugh, but it's kind of nasty and then you feel bad about it afterwards. And I feel like he didn't have anything nice to say about anyone. And he just, you know, would talk about a book reviewer and say, who's actually quite smart and say, you know, she's the stupidest woman on earth and, and you know, these kinds of things that are kind of fun But they're exaggerated. And then I felt bad that we didn't, you know, question him on any of his negativity.
1: Although it's a great American tradition. H.L. Mencken, the master of the omnidirectional insult, Dorothy Parker was great at it. Gore Vidal was superb at it. Truman Truman and Capote and and Gore Vidal both. Um, The things they said about each other. What was it? Gore Vidal said Truman Capote's death was a good career move. Truman Capote said... (laughs) What did you think about his
0: name? It was in the Times today, actually, and right. I can't remember the quote. Okay, okay but here's a good up.
2: insult mm-hmm. comparing him to Dorothy Parker and H.L. Munkin is um, really more than he deserves.
1: <laughs> See, that's not <laughs> funny. <laughs> It's just mean.
2: <laughs>
1: it doesn't even rise yeah. to the level yeah. of mean. Yeah.
2: Calling yeah. somebody this, uh, the stupidest woman on earth who's clearly a bright woman, I don't find that funny. I don't think that's funny. Calling somebody a wastebasket, I don't know. I just, that wasn't witty. That but, was not I feel witty. Like, but
0: I feel like in a situation like this, he was clearly on a roll. I don't think necessarily laughter
1: conveys assent, although we did encourage him, which frankly was my intent because it is fun to i mean it's Schadenfreude right we we enjoy people saying nasty things about each other it's it's a, it's a it's a fundamental literary pleasure and not
0: just absolutely, that absolutely but th-
2: we don't do it on the radio I th-
0: I disagree with you I think most people on the mic are very circumspect they really watch what they say they're very very guarded and when somebody comes in like Gary Indiana who is completely verbally incontinent I I <laughs> welcome that because it's, it's very entertaining. See, here he,
1: I am laughing at you saying he's, verbally. He's,
0: he's a very clever guy. He's provocative. He's, he's no dummy. And if he says things that are insulting to people, well, I have no problem with that. I'm not saying it. And further, it's, I don't feel like it's yours, Laurie or Tom's, or my responsibility to, to push back. You know really. what you
2: sound like right now, though? Donald Trump. Because when people were really angry at him for letting that guy say that Obama was a Muslim, he was like, I don't need to take up for Obama. He can take up for himself. Let's see, you this know? is
0: perfect. You're comparing me to Donald Trump, yeah. which I welcome, because you're know you you're usually so, more circumspect when funny, you talk yeah. to me. So let it fly. And you know, Ms. Fiorina, while I'm talking to you on the mic, what I'd like to say is...
2: Hey, that's a face only a mother could love.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, and hyperbole is the figure of our age. No, exactly it is the rhetorical right. figure of our age. Exactly we, right. We, 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 it's it's everywhere, uh, so it's going to happen in the insults as well.
0: And so and so, if a guy like Gary Indiana comes in, who's a literary equivalent of Trump in that way, in terms of how he expresses himself, I think good for us. We're lucky to have a guest who says what's on his mind.
2: I don't agree, but all right.
0: Thanks to David Eulin. Our apologies once again to B.J. Novak. We ran out of time, but guess what? He said
1: he will come back next week. He's going to have a new book out next week, I think. So it's going to work
0: out really well. I am looking forward to talking to him about it. Lori, are you looking forward to this conversation with B.J. Novak? Yeah,
2: I mean, it feels like we've been waiting so long. and yeah, It's overdue. It's overdue. I'm we're really, all really eager it. to do it. Yeah.
0: You know, Tom, Laurie... What the world needs is another literary podcast. I feel that way myself. And there's one called Books and Authors.
2: I don't understand what's it about.
0: How did they think of that title is what I want to know. (laughs) They gave us a shout out last week. We are very grateful for that. They did a show Eileen Miles was on. If the listeners out there type in Books and Authors, Eileen Miles, they will get a link to that interview and uh, we endorse it here. Thanks also to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin, our crack production assistant, Ernesto Aureliano, and of course the irreplaceable Sid Biggs, without whom we could not do this show. Also, the generosity of the Gold Hirsch Foundation. Give speaking us that grant. of which, give us that.
2: Seriously, dudes.
0: LA 2050. Vote. Vote. Go to your computer. Click that mouse. Vote for LARB. We need the money. Where do they
2: vote? <laughs> <laughs> What do we want? When Money. Do we
0: want it. Click on the yellow vote button on the LARB site. For Tom Lutz and Laurie Weiner, I'm Seth Greenland. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK FM. Uh, we will see you here. I believe Tom will be here next week, right? We will be here. Lori, and, and next week. I
2: will be here. And,
0: and BJ Novak will be
2: And by. BJ will definitely
0: be here. That's a promise.